Welcome, everybody, to the PFF College Football Podcast. I'm your host, PFF Seth, alongside, of course, Deontay Lee. And joining us, we have no intro. We're going straight into it. Uh, joining us uh, for his third time on the podcast, I believe, Mr. Richard, the one and only Johnson. What's going on, Rich? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm looking for an apartment right now, and that is basically my second job. I Last week, I basically am not sure I can tell you how many moments of the day I didn't either watch quarterbacks or look for an apartment. What's the weather like in New York City? It, today, it's actually really nice. It got nice today for like the first time. Um, it was it was in the 30s over the weekend. It was awful. How how is it in Montreal? You live in you live in Canada. I don't. I'm not going to hear weather. You know, no weather uh, condescension from you. Yeah, I can't talk about the weather. Meteorologist, I can't. <laughs> give it to us. I, I'm not allowed. I'm putting I'm I'm putting like a ban on myself from talking about the weather on any podcast that I'm on from now until the rest of till I die, basically. But yeah, the weather's pretty good actually. We we have the same weather patterns. Like New York City and Montreal have very similar. You know, when you guys get a cold front, we get a cold front. When it gets hot with you guys, we get hot. Uh, maybe there's a difference in like degrees here, but but yeah, the sun is out. Um, so I went outside for like eight seconds, and then I call it a day. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Uh, all right. Uh, so you're apartment hunting. Um, you're doing that. You're watching quarterbacks because your favorite team. Let's get into this. Your favorite team on the NFL side, the Jacksonville Jaguars, because you are born in. Jacksonville, Jacksonville area. I, yeah, I'm, I was born in Gainesville actually. So Gainesville is basically an hour and a half from Jacksonville. Um, okay. I can be at Everbank Field. I don't even TIA Bank Field. I don't even know what they're fucking calling it. It's Alltel <laughs> Stadium to me. Uh, yeah, I could be at the stadium in an hour and a half. Uh, so yeah, your favorite team is is about to draft a generational quarterback. Uh, how do you yeah, I almost that? I almost didn't want to. To be honest with you, if I I only watched the rest of the quarterbacks so that I can a sound smart in group chats with you guys <laughs> and B because I was doing a podcast uh, with our, our buddies, Derek class and Ben Solak about quarterbacks. And I needed to sound smart around them. I personally have no need to watch any quarterback. I have no need. I, I might not even turn it on until the second pick. I don't care. No, nothing, nothing since the day the Jets won that game has stressed me out about the draft process. You know that LeBron screenshot where he's like in the pool and he's like living my best life, unbothered, <laughs> da, 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 da. That has been me the entire draft evaluation process. 49ers moved up to three. I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. I'm unaffected. I have Trevor Lawrence for a decade. So I, I have enjoyment for a decade worth of fall Sundays at the very least. So let me ask you this. I mean, obviously you, you're familiar with them because you cover college football. What's your favorite Trevor Lawrence performance? They, he had a throw. I, I, I'll, I'll do throws first. Um, they played <laughs> Texas A&M. His, I believe it was his sophomore year. I know what you're talking about. At Clemson. Yeah. He is... <laughs> 
<laughs> he's rolling left. Oh my God. Oh my God. He rolls left, throws across his body into the, like the, the front corner of the end zone to a waiting receiver. He basically duplicated that actually against Georgia tech this, this last season. Um, that may be my favorite uh, game or uh, that may be my favorite throw from him. Uh, my favorite game, honestly, it might be the first Alabama championship game where, I mean, it was just like, this guy should be in over his head. Um, and he is just so poised and so good. And yeah, his receiver sort of bailed him out on some, on some nuts stuff, but it it was like, yeah, like you, you guys have interviewed um, our buddy, Bud Elliott, who works over at two, four, seven. And I will never forget Trevor was about 16 years old. Um, and Bud told me, he was like, yeah, this guy could start right now on multiple college football teams. Like, n- like no questions asked. And that's the thing about him that I think is just so special for me being primarily a college football guy having known about this guy since before he had a driver's license and watching him every single, I mean, he has lived up to the billing every single step of the way. And I don't know what's going to go, what's going to happen when they draft him. Um, And when he goes to the NFL, it it could fall by the wayside because it's the Jaguars Lord knows, but uh, (laughs) it's, it's uh, until this moment, he has been everything promised. And I, it it is so exciting to think that the future of the Jacksonville Jaguars may be sewn up a little bit, At, at least, at least I'll have meaningful December football, which they have had like one time in the last decade. I mean, it's um, the season. We got time to burn. So, Seth, what about you? Favorite throw or favorite game? Uh, you know what? I, I was thinking about it. This, There's two that pop into my head. So, there's one against, like, the Citadel this year where he throws that post the to the Mario Rodgers. Yeah. yeah. And he keeps him, he like throws it right on the edge of the field. Um, yeah. You know, the back to back of the end zone. The back of the end zone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, he runs Amari into the stanchion. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. yeah. Which, by uh, the way, but, Mike Williams broke his neck doing that. By the way, a couple mm-hmm. years ago, that's how Mike Williams got hurt. I don't remember that. And they um, and they uh, expanded the goalpost pad because of that. Well, you know what happens? <laughs> Every episode comes back to some Canadian football thing, but the, the you know the, the goalpost at the front of the end zone in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can't put him at the back of a twenty-five yard end zone. The, then the every field goal would be from sixty yards. But like uh, that happens a lot. Let me tell you. Uh, running into the stanchions uh, happens a lot uh, at every level of Canadian football. But okay, the other throw that I would, that I want to say is again, you talk about the the national championship game against Alabama. It's early, right, pretty early in the game, I believe, when he throws the corner out um, um, to the to the wide side, and there's that clip of um, Carl Scott. Clip that, uh, yeah, the clip of uh, that a friend of ours put together of uh, uh, of an overlay of one of the Alabama. Uh, coaches a db coach at the time i believe talking about how hey you know we allow that route to be thrown because no, <laughs> no one's gonna no it. one's gonna hit it right <laughs> like we're okay with that because you can't drive the field doing that and then trevor lawrence does that field side corner route in on the money you know on the sideline so um so before we get to deontay's throw i just want to uh, okay, i forgot to do this uh richard is the host of uh, my favorite and probably the best college football podcast out there uh split oh, i don't know about that, that. I didn't pay so. you enough to say that. <laughs> so I just wanted to put that in before we get to uh, Deontay's favorite Trevor Lawrence uh, game and throw. Yeah, well, I will say that I guess I will still recognize uh, what's it called? Uh, the shutdown podcast is the internet's only college football podcast. <laughs> I guess Split Zone Duo exists somewhere in the ether around college football, you know, as a close second. Something um, like that. 
My favorite throw is from the same game that we all refer- are referencing. It's that first uh, national title game against Alabama, and it's at it's towards the end of the game. So there are the two nuts Justin Ross catches um, that he makes on that drive, right? You have the one-handed one by the sideline, and then they get to the like a goal line situation. They're about four yards out, and he hits T. Higgins on this dig route on the back line of the end zone. And when they show the replay from the end zone copy, you can see that Mac Wilson gets like 36 inches of vertical up and almost gets a finger on it. And T Higgins catches it full extension and get, and then gets lit up by Deontay Thompson uh, for a flag. But that was one of the throws. Where I was like, okay, this arm strength thing is like serious, serious. And that's when, you know, he was a true freshman favorite game for me is probably the Ohio state game uh, from their uh, loss to uh, their loss to LSU in the national title game that year. Um, you know, you got to see a little bit of everything from him, how he can, how he runs, some of the throws and tight windows, being able to deal with pressure and obviously having to come back and deal with some adversity. That's probably my, my favorite overall performance is. There's a, there's one play in that game where it's, it's the turf monster got chase young, but there's one play in that game where he jukes out chase young kind of sorta. Um, and I, <laughs> I cling to that when I reference his athleticism, it was a turf monster thing more than anything, but people don't need to know that. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't really want to do talk about the quarterbacks on this podcast because like every other podcast in the PFF network talks about the quarterbacks. But since we're on the topic already, let's say Richard um, Trevor Lawrence does not exist. Jesus, there's this there's this other group of prospects that I think everyone has their own opinion on of who's QB one. You know, of the let's say the next four um, that kind of round up the big five this year. Uh, Trevor Lawrence does not special. exist. <laughs> uh, and by and by the big five, I mean uh, Trevor Lawrence and then four times Kyle Trask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, if, if if Trevor Lawrence doesn't exist, who do you who would you want the Jaguars to take at number one? The uh, the non QB the non Trevor Lawrence QB one is Justin Fields for me. Um, I like I think that so I think that Zach Wilson's uh, shooting up draft boards is more not more but I think pretty heavily honestly due to aesthetics. I think the aesthetics that he plays the position with are like pretty cool. Yep. Um, now I think that is part of his fault, by the way, I'm like, Hey buddy, maybe stay in structure a little bit more on these plays and they wouldn't be sacks or you wouldn't be throwing 50 yard bombs because you're staying within the structure of the play. You break structure uh, at basically the first hint of pressure. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now the flip side of that for fields is that field stays in structure too long to his detriment. And then he takes a sack sometimes, or he ducks uh, like the play that he got hurt on in the semifinal. When you run the 22 of that play there is a wide open receiver on the right side of the field like gesticulating with his arms that he's so wide open um but fields doesn't he doesn't get there now yes it would have been a full field read which okay whatever it's called football but he doesn't get over there he pulls his eyes down and runs and gets lit up by skalski in that play but my thing here and like this is why i don't get all the 49ers mac jones talk i'm like if you're obsessed with a quarterback who you think the head coach has to predetermine the whole game in the headset until it cuts off. Why would you not take the quarterback who is objectively a better football player at doing that sort of thing? If you want to go get the guy who only locks on one read air quotes, 
go get Justin Fields. He's just a much better quarterback. So I do not believe that the 49ers traded up to three to get Mac Jones. I won't have it. They're drafting Justin Fields. Unless the Jets do. And I guess that's a surprise because <laughs> everybody thinks Zach Wilson's going to the Jets. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, well, I think all three of us agree with what you just said. And, and, and I think, sorry, I just coughed there. Uh, and I think that the whole aesthetic with Zach Wilson is precisely why he's rocketed up these boards because ain't played nobody. Like, ain't played nobody. If I turn on, if I click on an article and there's analysis of him against BYU or Western Kentucky, I X the tab out because none of that is real. It's seven on. It's not real. It was cut on the coastal game and look at like a modicum of a a squished pocket and not even bad. No. And I think like, you know, even the coastal game, which he played well, I don't think he played awful. He played, he played well in that game, but I mean, like the pockets, you you had a tweet about this um, like a month ago or something, just like showing a still picture of him in in these pockets that are gigantic. (laughs) Cause that offensive line was really dominant this year. They're going to have a guy in Brady Christensen that goes top three rounds, probably. I mean, some people are even saying maybe a late first, something like that. Like, and he's just dom- dom- absolutely dominating all these 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 non edge rushers that they played against this year. And yeah, so I think I think the Wilson thing is just overblown. I just think people just like looking at that type of quarterback who's got some twitch to him and twitch in a way that Justin Fields, who's probably a better athlete, doesn't have. And I think that skews our opinion because um, we see, I've talked about this a lot, but you know, with, with, with Wilson, he has such a quick release that it plays an optical illusion on us in that, wow, wow. Look at how fast his ball is coming out. Look at how, how strong his arm is and stuff like that. Where with Wilson, it's a slower release, but you could argue it's a stronger arm. But when we watch it, we look at the two and we, that, that quick release, um, uh, fools us into believing that it's you're throwing the ball further or faster or whatever, um, which I, I, I really don't think is the case. And then you even get into running ability. Fields is clearly a A-plus runner with the ball in his hands, but he, he looks like he's running slow. Because he's not, I don't, I mean, look, he is fast twitch, but he's not like, he's not your typical fast. He's not like Trey Lance in the same draft class. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just running downhill and he's, and then p- people are just not being able to catch him, but he's not like shaking people. He's not, sh- you know, shifty like that. He's just running by people. So I think the athletic ability is there. Just like there's an optical illusion when you compare Lance to, uh, no, sorry, when you compare uh, fields to Wilson, where Wilson is getting the benefit of the doubt of that optical optical illusion. So for the New York Jets social media team, that's the clip you're going to use at the end of uh, this season <laughs> when Seth becomes the Zach Wilson guy and the Justin Herbert guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell I'm going to get my producer to chop that up right away. Oh, God. All right, let's talk about college football. Um, so one of the reasons we want to have you on the podcast, um, A, because we're friends, but also, um, you know, we haven't really talked about some of the – goings on in this off season of college football, starting with um, the NCAA in court. Um, so I just, if you could like give us a, if you could explain to us and the listeners um, what happened last week to the NCAA with, you know, NIL and stuff uh, like we're five. 
Sure. Um, okay, so the NCAA is in court right now. They are not actually in court regarding name, image, and likeness. It's sort of a, a that that sort of runs concurrent to what they're actually in court about. What they are directly in court about is an antitrust exemption. Um, other leagues have an antitrust exemption. Major Baseball has one. Da 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 da. Um, basically, what the NCAA. Uh, wants the antitrust exemption for is that so they can say we put a cap on how much schools can offer athletes uh, money, that sort of stuff. They want to take the antitrust exemption and use it for that. So now remember, when I say schools, that's important because all of these NIL laws are third parties paying players, right? It's all about local car dealership paying a player or a local booster with a car wash paying players, those types of people. So they run sort of in parallel um, as we are on these train tracks that is moving towards at a greater increasing rate, uh, athletes being compensated, which is going to happen. It's going to happen. I would ballpark it within the next two years um, with all of these state laws being passed all over the country. This is one of the things that I actually agree with the NCAA when they say this. The NCAA cannot have college athletics operating in 50 different ways. That, whew, sorry about that. Uh, the NCAA cannot have college athletics operating in 50 different ways. I like, I agree when they say that. That's, that's unwieldy. It's semi-ridiculous. It would be impossible to, um, to, to curtail. It just can't happen. But I do think that the states need to keep pushing on these individual name, image, and likeness laws because it keeps the NCAA's feet to the fire on uh, on modernizing their own rules to allow name, image, and likeness. All of these laws will fall by the wayside when, and I use the word when, the NCAA enacts their own aim, name, image, and likeness uh, legislation within the NCAA bylaws, I should say, because NCAA rules are not laws, they are bylaws. Uh, so the NCAA basically wants to control how name, image, and likeness happens. One of the things that I know the NCAA wants is for like, a, um, a college golfer to not be able to give lessons. That's like one of the things that they're like hung up on. God knows why, but it is. Um, so it, it, they, the NCAA wants to control how this is going with the state laws being passed all over the place that obviously changes the locus of control over this issue. Um, and that is not even to say anything about the two federal uh, laws that seem to be, or bills, I should say, that seem to be working their way through um, through Congress. It, NIL is wild because it is like, I, I don't know what's more bipartisan. I, maybe defense spending. Um, you know, I, it is insanely bipartisan. There are people uh, pushing name, image, and likeness laws, name, image, and likeness bills through their different state houses that I do not agree with at all on their regular politics, 364 days of the year. But when it comes down to should college athletes be compensated for their name, image, and likeness and what they do at the collegiate level when their careers are arguably the most monetizable for like 99% of them, uh, we are in lockstep. So it's an easy win for a lot of politicians. Um, it's, it's a layup. Uh, if you're a free market capitalist Republican, 
yeah, let's let the free market go. If you're a Democrat, you can pitch that it's institutional wealth uh, coming to marginalized communities and largely people of color and and, yeah, and women and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's sort of something there for everybody who wants to take the issue on. Um, and particularly, I mean, if, if you are a uh, representative or senator who is backed by a lot of universities or you represent a university community or anything like that. Like this is something that touches your university community. And it's, and it's something that you can, can take up Mark Walker, the Senator from North Carolina. I mean, we all know what is big business as far as college sports in North Carolina. Um, so he can sort of take this on and, and people get it. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and I think the arc of college sports history, has finally gotten to the point where it's just like, come on, like, what are we doing here? Not letting them make money. Um, when the NCAA has a, a billion dollar year television contract for the basketball, the men's basketball tournament, it's ridiculous. Right. And I think that one of the things that has always stuck out to me the most, as, as far as like this issue progression through the courts. Um, and I think this is the point that Bomani Jones has brought up. And when he said it, it was really illuminating to me. And it's just that, the NCAA's stance on NIL rights just does not hold up in, in these courtrooms. You know, like I'll, you'll look at some of these opinions or some of the, um, you know, what politicians are writing about it, you know, what statements are coming out about it and the clarity with which they speak about how broken a business model it is, you know, it is illuminating. So when you speak to, you know, how bipartisan an issue that these kinds of things are like, that is one thing that I think even I've been shocked by as a former college athlete and somebody who has very clear ideas of where things should be at from the perspective of um, name, image, and likeness. I, I was not expecting to get that kind of response from the political sphere on, on this issue. Yeah, I, and I should have said, I actually should have said first, where the where the NCAA's antitrust thing actually stands now is it was orally argued in front of the Supreme Court for the first time right. last right. week. That's what I should have said from the top. Um, that's that's why it's in the news. That's why it's being talked about. This is a two to three-year-old case, I think, um, as far as sort of has it been in the zeitgeist. Um, it's, it's longer than that as sort of it's worked its way through the court system. This can be thought of basically as where the Edo Bannon case sort of like left off. Like the Ed O'Bannon case got full cost of attendance for college athletes. So they can be paid room board, but like uh, like rent and stuff like that by schools. Um, this is sort of the logical next step in that. Now, again, this is just by schools. The stuff that's happened in the Supreme Court is just schools paying or offering um, incentives or benefits or what have you. Um, you know, I try not to, my, my girlfriend's a law student. Um, she's gonna be a lawyer in like a month. And she, so we were listening to the thing together and she, and she was like, you know, don't put too much stock into the oral argument. Because if you listen to the oral argument that, that happened, the NCAA's lawyer was getting blown out at the way it sounded. Now, that's just how it sounded. She was like, don't worry. Sometimes they go hard because they agree with the uh, lawyer that is arguing whatever side it is that they agree with. And they're actually trying to get the lawyer to explain the issue out. So don't put too much stock into the oral arguments, even though Clarence Thomas did uh, speak, which apparently he's been doing recently, but that is a big deal. Seth, I know that doesn't make sense to you uh, at all. But Clarence Thomas speaking to a segment of the audience listening to this podcast will come as something of a surprise. Also, Clarence Thomas, noted Nebraska football fan, actually massive Nebraska football fan. 
Somehow um, that's shocking and not shocking at the exact yes, same time. It is. <laughs> uh, I don't appreciate you just assuming my knowledge of the U.S. Supreme Court. You're not wrong. <laughs> I just don't want. I don't like you assuming it. Um, one one of the things that I hear is a pushback, and I think it's kind of a little phony. But I'm curious to hear like someone who who understands it better than I do talk about it. Is the pushback is like, oh well, if this happens, then um, the rest of the sports are going to crumble and the women's sports are going to crumble um, because we can't pay everybody and now we have to pay them equal amounts of stuff. Um, is that true? Um, or you know, what do you see happening to these other sports? You know, not football, not men's basketball. So the, the reason why, first of all, that argument does not hold any water. Uh, that is also one of the biggest uh, benefits for name, image, and likeness, NIL, by a third party. Remember, if we take payments out of the school's hands, then why would the school cry poor if they're not paying the athletes at all beyond scholarship, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so the third party thing I think will be huge for some of the Olympic sports. Um, I would like to see these Olympic sports be able to do things like give lessons and stuff like that. Um, it, you know, I, I would like, honestly, if you're a good looking, uh, male track athlete, why wouldn't you be able to be an IG model? Like you should be able to monetize yourself like that. Like stuff like that is, is what, uh, are the new frontiers that, athletes will be able to do um with name image and likeness if you are a woman volleyball player and you sing really well like why not be able to actually get uh like deliver a patreon for your songs or maybe even you get a little recording deal for your songs and you are able to monetize your name image and likeness when it is most monetizable when you're a junior in college, that's the peak. When you graduate and you're not on the team anymore and you don't have, you know, any backing or you don't have the team's social media account to signal boost you or whatever, like obviously your ability to benefit off that name, image, and likeness lessens, whether you're in college or when you're out of college, of course. Um, that's just obvious. So now schools are ready for this, by the way. Schools are already starting to consult with um, like social media firms and all this kind of stuff that can monetize brands and all this type of stuff. The wheels are in motion. This is happening. Um, this isn't 20 years ago when it was just sort of theoretical. Uh, this is going to happen and it's going to happen pretty soon. PFF and Sunday Night Football's Chris Collinsworth is teaming up with one of the best players on and off the field, 49ers All-Pro cornerback Richard Sherman. The Chris Collinsworth podcast featuring Richard Sherman is available now wherever you find your podcast. They will provide the most interesting football conversation in sports every week. And sometimes that means the discussion will venture off the field too. Additionally, Chris will be taking a dive into the game of football as he sees it, inviting in the best and brightest to talk about everything that is happening in the great game of football. Mark your calendars. You do not want to miss the best 60 minutes of insight this season. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience together, we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, investments. So yeah, I mean, I can't, I really can't stress this enough. Um, and this is a point that I think I've made in casual conversations with people who maybe are not as plugged into this issue, uh, who ha or have like a very passing interest in this issue. Like when we talk about 
um, what the market would be like for these athletes. You know, I've always, you always hear things like, well, you know, what if an Adidas wants to come in and try to undercut a Nike school by getting to a kid? And I'm like, no, 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 you guys are not understanding. That's not really the thing that we're talking about here. Um, that's not the way that the business will work out. However, if you are, say, a woman's soccer player at like an ACC school and you have a high profile, you're well followed on social media, it should be, you should be able to monetize that by Fashion Nova reaching out to you and saying, hey, we have this line. You, or makeup you have, or whatever, exactly, or shoes. You, or you have access to maybe one of our biggest markets with young people with disposable income who are very, who are very tapped into like the kind of influencer social media culture that exists. So not only is that an aspect of it for student athletes to be able to monetize their own name, image, and likeness, we are probably in maybe as healthy an ecosystem socially as there could be for student athletes to be able to take what they have, the power that they have with their stature as student athletes and to be able to secure at least a little bit of money. It might not be generational wealth, but at least a little bit of money for themselves and their families with all these different opportunities and avenues to monetize themselves. Yeah. Like it's like, it, even if these, uh, these college athletes are not going to be, six figure windfalls tomorrow. You know, I think all of us remember when we were in college, if someone said, here's a thousand dollars when we were sophomores, Dude, someone told me that now, tell me where to sign. <laughs> <laughs> tell me like, where to sign. <laughs> yeah. Like, and now I do think that there will need to be, uh, for the athlete, for the athlete side, there's going to need to be, um, some sort of clearing house, element to these agreements. Um, I think that probably will end up involving the schools just so you make sure that athletes are not taken advantage of. Um, uh, you know, I, I, will you be able to hire an agent or something like that? Maybe who doesn't run your, uh, your, your athletic career, your athletic pursuits, but does run your marketing like that sort of stuff will probably need to happen. There will need to be mechanisms in place for that. Um, but those are things that we're going to have to figure out on the fly. Um, I, you know, it will be unfortunate, but kids at some point in time are probably going to be exploited during this. It may happen. Um, I think that's one of those things that's an unintended consequence of that. I don't think we should sit here and turn a blind eye to that possibility. But if you're going to sit here and tell me that the, uh, the negatives outweigh the positives of, of name, image, and likeness and players getting compensated above room board tuition, I, it, you're, it's just not ever going to be an argument for me that holds water. It's just not true. All right, let's turn our attention to the University of Kansas, who is looking for an athletic director and a head coach um, in the middle of spring practice, which doesn't yeah. seem very less than good. ideal. Um, uh, so yeah, so they fire they fire Les Miles because of issues that he had at uh, LSU, and there's a lot of fallout um, from that uh, outside of LSU as of this point, um, but not at LSU. So when you look at Kansas, what is going on there? Yeah, so we're in this position uh, ostensibly because Kansas did not vet LSU, uh, Les Miles, during his time at LSU. And because uh, some of the things that Les Miles uh, is alleged to have done at, L at LSU did not come to light. There was a 2013 investigation into Les Miles' conduct at LSU. Uh, it 
revealed, among other things, that he was alleged to have like taken a student and a, a woman student and kissed her uh, in either his car or his condo. Les Miles used to have a condo like right across the street from Tiger Stadium. Um, and it, it, it brought up a lot of other things. It brought up, uh, even when he was at Oklahoma state, he was like weirdly way too in to the, uh, recruiting hostess, uh, sort of apparatus. Um, Deontay, you know, when you get recruited places like, um, hostesses, women, uh, who are contracted, they're volunteers, uh, with the football programs, they like take you out and whatever. And that, uh, can be problematic as you can expect some places. Um, and apparently Les Miles was sort of taking too much of an interest in scouting for lack of a better term, uh, women for that program. Uh, that was at Oklahoma state at LSU. Um, there was some of that stuff going on as well. Uh, this investigation brought up many more things. I encourage anybody to read the USA today's reporting on this issue. It's really, really good. Um, as far as Kansas is concerned, basically what got Kansas and got now former AD Jeff Long is that this stuff came out, right? It came out when it did, and they basically it was Jeff Long, did you know about this? And Jeff Long was like, oh, no, but I vetted Les Miles really well, and this stuff didn't come up. So there's either two things at play. Either you didn't vet him and you're lying about it, or you vetted him and your vetting sucked. And that also sort of is in an ecosystem of Les Miles having jammed this thing, or uh, sorry, Jeff Long, having jammed this hire through sort of in 2018 to sort of get his guy in. Uh, so Kansas fired them both, <laughs> um, fired them both in pretty short order uh, early in, in early March. And um, Kansas then went into the sort of twofold hire a coach and an athletic uh, director at the same time. Now, to Kansas's credit, Kansas actually has done it the right way, which is hire the athletic director first. That's what you're supposed to do. That's a big deal. It's a good thing that they're doing. Um, as far as I understood, it's it's now April 5th. Um, over the weekend, uh, the search sort of kind of kicked up steam. It had kind of gotten stuck uh, towards the end of uh, towards the end of March. It looked like Pat Chun, who's Washington State's AD, was going to be the guy, and then that fell through. Um, and and it's sort of down to a few people, uh, including up through the weekend, uh, Tulane's athletic director Troy Dannon, uh, and an associate athletic director at Northwestern named Travis Goff. Uh, those are two of the big players. There's also a guy who a lot of the boosters like, uh, and his name is Banks Floodman. He played for Mark Mangino uh, and a lot of the boosters at Kansas. Like he sort of has the inside track to the job because of that, because he raises a lot of money. So. Kansas uh, hired a search firm to help vet their candidates for the AD search, all this kind of stuff. Um, right now, it's sort of search firms, surfaced candidates versus Kansas's own internal search committees, candidates, two or three on each side, elevate them to the Kansas chancellor and make the decision. Um, that decision I am expecting in short order here, and, and Kansas can get to the business of hiring a football coach now. That is pretty hard, given that it's April. Um, coaches often don't think twice about leaving their programs to take another job, but April is one of the times when they will think twice about leaving a job, um, particularly the Kansas job. Um, it, Kansas has a pretty unique set of circumstances for why they're really, really bad. Um, they have been in various versions of scholarship hell uh, for a couple of years based on what Charlie Weiss did and didn't do. Uh, basically, previous regimes have tried to come in, recruit a bunch of JUCO players, coach those guys up, and try to win. That is what Kansas State 
across the state or down the road, I should say, actually did with Bill Snyder. But Bill Snyder is one of the best college football coaches pound for pound of all time. Uh, Charlie Weiss is not that. Uh, David Beatty is not that. God bless him. Um, so Kansas, there, there are a few things at play here uh, institutionally. Uh, the One of the things has to do with the fact that, obviously, as we know, Kansas is a massive basketball school. So right now, Kansas is dealing with the NCAA FBI investigation that is still ongoing. Um, they're going to fight that in the courts for years to come. So if you're an athletic director, you have to consider that. Um, also, and it, it may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. They just gave Bill Self what amounts to a lifetime contract. So yeah, basketball may t- be taken care of, but let's say basketball slips in a couple of years because of the NCAA sanctions or Bill Self doesn't take a liking to you as the new AD. Um, that's not great. So in my opinion, the new Kansas AD should come in and say, I'm here to fix football, basketball, do whatever you want. <laughs> keep getting to the, keep getting to the lead eights and final fours. Nobody's going to care. Bill self's the most important person in the state. Um, I'm going to rebuild football. Uh, Kansas has a new uh, football facility coming. Um, there's a little bit of money in the banana stand there, but you still have the, the problems that, that exist there. Um, you still have to have, a coach there that is in for a fixer upper. This is not a two year turnaround. This is, you know, how long will it take Kansas to have back-to-back winning seasons, five years, six years. I mean, it's, it's not an easy job. Um, So we'll see what happens. Uh, You know, there's always a Willie Fritz who's Tulane's head coach and loves himself a fixer upper. He's bouncing around, um, you know, guys and, and has some uh, experience in the state uh, back in the day. He's a guy who I think uh, would be a really good get for Kansas. Uh, and it, it would probably be Willie's last job. Um, I don't think Kansas is cut out for, hot shot coordinator coming in, trying to get to the next level in three or four years, because I don't think that's possible at Kansas. Um, you know, for Kansas to have a 10 and 11 win season, something has to be wrong in the big 12. And, you know, those are sort of the facts of the matter. Um, so what is maxing out Kansas? Can you do a bowl a couple of years in a row? Yeah. Would Kansas fans probably be pretty psyched by back-to-back seven win seasons? Yeah. Um, so structure a schedule where you can win some games, pip somebody in the big 12 a couple times um, and, and get this thing to a bowl game and people, people will be pretty happy, but that's, that's going to take a little bit. Yeah. The timeline there is tough. I do think the one thing that is really kind of struck um, and stood out to me was Joe Oliva's role around 2013 when this story yes. first broke. Um, Cause I remember around that time, that story kind of being reported on and then it kind of got stamped out. It sort of went away. Yeah. It got stamped out and disappeared a little bit. And then, you know, that was, that was one of LSU's better seasons towards the end of Les Miles's run. You know, like they have an argument that aside from some of their close losses and being dominated by Alabama, they have a claim of saying that they were probably the second best team in the SEC maybe at that point in time. You know, if you go back and look at that roster, that's the Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham, Zach Mettenberger team. So when mm-hmm. I look back now with the way that maybe the money at LSU responded to Oliva saying that we could fire him for cause. I was like, huh? Yes. I, think I, I left can, that out. Yeah. I, I can no, make I two, that two and two are making four here, you know, as yeah. far as the response to what those allegations were at the, at that time. 
Yeah, Joe Oliva, uh, Joe Oliva is literally on the record saying we could fire him for cause because of this stuff, and they decided not to, and then they bring him back, and he goes two and two, and you fire him in October, or October whenever it was that year. Um, the fallout from this is also greater than Kansas. I mean, F. King Alexander, who was president of LSU at the time, then went to Oregon State, has now been fired at Oregon State. So it's pretty wide-ranging sort of fallout from this. Um, the one thing is we will see what happens to Ed Orgeron as well, because Ed Orgeron is not blameless in this whole deal. Again, this, there is tremendous reporting on this in the USA Today that, that can summarize this way better than I can because um, I'm kind of coming off the top of the dome here. Uh, but it, it, something is rotten in Denmark over there uh, yeah. in Baton Rouge. And part of this stems from the initial issue that Title IX uh, infrastructures at all, basically, college athletics programs are just tragically underfunded um and when they are tragically underfunded things like this can happen where where uh, legitimately bad stuff falls by the wayside why didn't anybody catch it da, 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 da. well there's only like three people working there versus how many ga's does edo have how many qa's does edo have how many it guys is an interview though <laughs> you mean he didn't use that big binder full of all that great information when he interviewed? It's it's like how many how many guys can tell me what side of the field or what hash of the field we were on on second and eight in the third quarter against McNeese State? But right. how many people can investigate legitimate Title IX claims of impropriety when it comes down to it? Yeah. There you go. That's the, that's the moral of the story. I mean, but that, and that's not just an LSU thing. That is, no, that is not, that just is a moral of college. That is just college sports in general and why these things continue to pop up at these high profile places. Because when you have small compliance departments and you have small title nine departments and there are places with a lot of money, all of a sudden the people with money start poking around and say, Hey, you don't really want that answer. Do you? Or maybe exactly. we should maybe we should start looking in another direction. Are you sure you can trust this testimony, et cetera, et cetera? On, we see it on television, you know, 15 years, 20 years down the line, there's always some documentary coming out about, you know, some explosive story that we got reporting on for a couple months, disappeared, and then it turned out to be some big bombshell. So that is definitely something I'm keeping my eye on as far as LSU is concerned. Um, you see, you mentioned some coaching candidates there. Is there anyone, I'll ask, I'm asking both of you guys, is there anyone who you would like, you, you, you know, you mentioned Willie Fritz, Willie Fritz is a cool guy. Um, but is there anyone that you personally would just like to see there at Kansas? Honestly, Fritz, like, I think yeah, it would okay. be really, really cool for Fritz to get a, a power five job. I mean, you want to talk about a coach's coach. Willie Fritz is a coach's coach. Um, you know, if you can get Tulane, Tulane to back-to-back -to -back bowl games, you know, you would think that Tulane's in New Orleans. It's really easy to win here. Nah, nah, nah. That is not the case. Um, what what Willie has been able to do at Tulane is a pretty big deal, um, and it's why, as sort of fixer-upper, I think he'd be really interesting. I thought he would have been interesting for an Arkansas or something like that. Um, I, I, you know, I would like to see, and I think if I'm Kansas the cheapest way to go about it is to play out the string on the interim coach and see what you have. Um, it's, it's cheaper and you're going to be less embarrassed if you play out the string, fire him in December because it didn't go well or do it now and then go rudderless and try to hire a guy on April 15th who may turn you down, not because he doesn't want the job actually, but because it's April 15th. I mean, and that makes sense from a timeline perspective. If you're a coach that's considering the job, I would much rather give the, the year zero to the interim and the new AD, let him do his assessment of what this program needs. And now I can step in as a program guy. So 
when I think about, you know, people that I might like for the job, and this is somebody, I've been beating this drum basically all offseason long for uh, Lance Leipold. Um, if you just yeah. look at the way that he builds programs, where he is from and the success he finds, beyond just what he does scheme-wise, which I enjoy, it's pretty clear that you can drop him just about anywhere in the country. And if you if you allow him to build, he'll give you something. You know, It might not be Wisconsin-Whitewater where we're winning national championships or playing for national championships every year, but he clearly has a great idea of how to build a program. I don't know if he'd be interested in going from Buffalo to Kansas. If it were I me, would say... I would say you're on the right track. Okay. All right. Well then I, I will say, I will save my own commentary on that then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. We're going to get back into uh, uh, the, the coaching carousel uh, in a bit. Um, but there are some questions I want to ask you guys uh, starting with um, a tweet I saw uh, from a friend of ours, coach fast, Chris Vassar. Um, talking about whether we're ever going to see another dominant corner uh, in the NFL, you know, in college, whatever. And then, you know, asking if receivers and the passing offense, even at college football, even in high school, has gone just too good. You know what I mean? Like it's too easy to find completions out there, uh, even against really good corners. And Deontay, you responded on Twitter saying um, – it's going to be tough, but one of the things that needs to happen is that wide receiver bodies need to come to the defensive side of the football because passing is too easy. So this is something that I think um, I've definitely thought of a lot of just coaching, you know, the lower levels of football, because the issue is probably, I think there's a theory that some people have, I don't know if it holds any water, but I think the issue is at the young, young age, if you're tall, if you're fast, you just, they put you a receiver. They tell you to go catch the football. And then, so you get that type of development. And then the smaller kids who might develop later and might become good, good players, but they don't get the development from an early age. Um, and so we just put all the better bodies at receiver and then it plays out, you know, eight, five, 10, eight, you know, years down the line. Um, when we get to this higher levels of college football in the NFL where, Hey, um, the big bodies are on the offensive side of the football. I mean, think of, uh, think of like Richard Sherman, who I'm told does a podcast with Chris Collinsworth. Uh, like think of Richard Sherman, right. Uh, who played receiver in college, right. Played receiver in college and then gets to the NFL and switches positions. And he's that long body and has the ball skills and, and knows intuitively what receivers are thinking uh, because he was a receiver. But like, my thing is like, think of the, and I, you guys are going to come up with somebody who's like 5'10". But think of the good corners in your head right now, what they look like. They're Jalen Ramsey's, right? They're the hybrid guys who can tackle, hit like safeties, um, but are, are long and are still fluid athletes and all that kind of stuff. Seth, you're right. Like, uh, you know, Jalen Ramsey in a different reality becomes a really, really good wide receiver. Um, but it, it, I think the, the length and long guys and it's it sort of, I don't want to say Seahawks mold guys, but like, that's what it, that's going to be what it takes. Now, one of these days that will relax some of the rules a little bit too, regarding pass interference, especially, which will help a lot of these guys out. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what I think about that. Uh, I mean, I'm going to say similar before you uh, say anything, breaking news. I know this is NFL. The Jets are trading quarterback Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers. Oh, <laughs> for a sixth round pick and a second, oh. a sixth round pick this year and a second and fourth 
in in 2022. So, thoughts right. and reactions right off the bat here. All right, Sam uh, becoming Carolina Panther. I, I that's that's a good haul. Um, you know, last week it was reported right that they were looking for like a first round pick, which means they were actually probably going to get a second round pick because they were definitely <laughs> yeah. testing the waters. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, second round pick for Sam Darnold, I think sounds good. I'm not a maybe I'm a Sam Darnold apologist. I don't think he's that broken. Uh, you know, Deontay, I know he's your guy, he's your USC guy. Um, I didn't think he was the best quarterback in the world that year. Um, uh, but obviously get the job done. And, and, you know, I've seen him in New York, obviously given that I live here and, and watched a lot more Jets football last year than, than I wanted to for uh, draft <laughs> reasons. Um, but no, like I think Sam could be successful. Um, and I, I get why it didn't work in New York, but, uh, all right, guess he's gone now. I'm fascinated to see what rule thinks of them, you know, like, what does mm. that, what does that really mean for the timeline for Carolina? You know, he didn't play at temple. So I'm surprised that he's, uh, he played <laughs> right. I mean, that's really what I'm most fascinated at and about. And I mean, I'm still, maybe this is just me because I understand that all the reporting says, you know, that, that Zach Wilson is the Jets guy, but I'm still fascinated with what they do at two. You know, they, they are going to have their pick of all non-Trevor Lawrence quarterbacks. So, you know, they're obviously not going to trade down from here. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have moved Darnold at this point in time anyhow. So with that in mind, I, I do really want to see if it's going to be Wilson and, you know, what it means for both franchises. I mean, it's not the gr- biggest draft haul in the world, but I wasn't under the impression that Carolina needed to find a quarterback right now. I don't think I don't know if that roster was ready to go quarterback hunting anyhow. So I'm interested to see, you know, what that means for both of these franchises. Uh, the Jets have 10 picks in this year's draft and 11 picks in next year's draft per Dan Graziano on Twitter, which is bananas. Yeah. But, uh, Tear down uh, soon come. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, my thing with Darnold is, I convinced myself that he was worthy of a top 10 pick, a top five pick uh, when he came out with the caveat being, okay, but you, you got to fix everything. <laughs> like like yeah. there's talent there. There's, there's a diamond in the rough, but there's a lot of rough. Right. And the, you know, and he, whether it's him, whether it's a coaching staff, whether it's the surrounding cast, you know, on the field with him, whatever it is, it never got fixed. So I just don't, you know what I mean? Like now I'm, I'm like, I get it. I see it now. I'm not going to believe it anymore. I'm not going to believe the hype anymore. So I'm pretty off Darnold. I guess what's interesting is like you talk about with Carolina is like, well, what are they going to do? Does they, do they think that they're okay with the two quarterbacks they have so that they're not going to take a Trey Lance at seven or a Mac Jones, if he falls to them or whoever, I think that's interesting too. Now um, seeing what the Panthers think about their quarterback situation. And we'll know when, once they make that pick, um, I mean, if or, I'm the Broncos, now, now they can trade down. Yeah. Th- like I'm thinking like the Bron. if I'm the Broncos, I don't get why the Broncos are already not on the phone with what I thought the Falcons, but now the jets. Um, But obviously like, I I think you probably imagine the jets want to take a quarterback because of this class and where they are. So why are the, why are the Broncos not on the phone with the Falcons post haste trying to get up to four um, to make that deal and try to get, whoever's left, whether it's Trey, uh, you know, whoever, whoever's sitting there for them as the fourth guy, not picked yet. Right. Especially considering the fact that they just redid Matt Ryan's contract. So it looks pretty clear. Like they're not looking for a quarterback to be a starter day one. That's not Matt Ryan. To me, that will be a ripe, you know, trade partner 
And if you're trying to sneak in and get a quarterback and you're, I mean, you're going to have to be okay with getting whoever's left over because you're not going to be able to trade into the top three spots anyhow. Okay. Uh, D, sorry for cutting you off. Uh, you were talking about receivers and DPs. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think I'm just on a similar record as Richard. I think that really the next evolution is going to be getting that body type in the slot, you know, getting away from using the, 5'10 guy with quick feet as your slot corner and using the guy that you would typically use on the outside, on the perimeter in the slot as well. Um, especially when you start talking about the way the teams run RPOs and the way the teams try to attack the seam and hurt defenses in the slot. So many of those passes, you can't, you can't play. If you play the kind of zone coverage it requires in order to deny those throws, it unwinds the defense in a way that's not tenable long-term. How, um, how is that? Because I'm that's a really interesting point. So to me, like, so I, I like to watch, you know, a lot of the a lot of the top programs in college football actually happen to be at the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff scheme wise. So when you start talking about teams who are playing a lot of too high now, um, you know, and we'll kind of get into it. I know you brought up the fact you wanted to talk about like bracket coverage and things like that. Just your coverage options in terms of what you can do to deny like those glance, those slant routes, um, you know, and throws up the seam and things like that. There are only certain coverages you can run to deny those throws. In my opinion, I'm sure there's some coach who has some five-star kid that runs a four, four <laughs> that plays nickel that says, you know, we can run cover one all day. Um, and maybe you can, you know, and good for you, but you know, all things being equal, the timing of the throw for one, I mean, in these offenses, it really is just the timing and the windows to throw into. It's just, to me, it's just not possible. At least if it's possible, we have not seen it yet. If I can watch Ohio State, who recruits as well as anybody else in the world, try to play a one kind of coverage and just get shredded by another team that you would say has like talent, to me that says that, okay, then this is not an issue. Of, it's partially an issue of scheme, but to me it has more to do with what bodies you're putting where. And you're going to have to put these more athletic, bigger kind of prototype six, one, six, two guys out in the slot in order to deny these throws, because I just feel like the way the offenses are now. Um, and I think that we had actually talked about this, uh, Richard, and I know you had referenced it on the podcast when we were talking about like uh, when you were talking about like Clemson preparing for Ohio State. Right. Certainly some of these offenses have like a master level understanding of if this is what you're doing from a coverage and front perspective, we're running these 12 to 14 plays. <laughs> we'll dress it up a hundred different ways, but we know that you can't defend this handful of plays just based on the way that the defense is structured. So when you end up with these issues, the next, the next piece of that is, well, what body types are we putting at, at these places? You know, if you can't beat somebody with scheme, you've got to be able to beat somebody, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. So that's kind of where we're at with it. You know, if you want to start denying some of these easy throws that offenses are getting, it's going to have to be a personnel issue. I just don't see a scheme answer right now. It's crazy because, like, we just watched Sean Wade, who is an insane talent inside, play out of position all year and look lost. Yeah. I mean, it looked lost for part of the season because of what they were trying to do to him. But, and you saw it a little bit in the national championship game, even against Alabama, when he was in, when he was in the box, that dude thumps. So it's like, it's, it's, what does it take? If a guy like Sean Wade can't hang on the outside, what does it take uh, to, to defend offenses in, in 2021, 2022 and, and onto the future? 
Yeah, so you brought up a point about like the two high coverages and stuff. And, and one of the coverage discussions that we wanted to have on the podcast was about certain two high coverages, but specifically um, all the coverages that you get when you play the nickel or the Sam linebacker or um, in kind of more broader terms, what we would call the overhang player outside of the slot. So I think that when you draw up a, uh, a play on a football whiteboard or in the sand or whatever, you're going to put that, if you have a slot formation, you're going to put that nickel just out of habit inside because that makes them, that, that certainly just makes the most sense as how we've understood football for many, many years. Um, it helps in the run game to tell you the right. truth. Um, because now that slot, if you want to block him, you got to block him inside out and that's a hard block. So if that, if the running back wants to bounce the ball out, well, I'm sitting there and you can't block me because I'm already, I'm inside of you. You know, you're going to, you're going to block me from behind. That's a penalty. But now what we're seeing so much more of is that player being in zone coverage, that player being outside shade of the slot in it's in an effort to eliminate certain routes. Obviously you can eliminate out routes, um, but it does change how you're going to fit against the run. Now, all of a sudden safety has got to be more of a box player or a run fit player. Um, so I was curious because it's something that it's been happening maybe the past 10, 15 years in, in college football and, and especially the past five years in college football. Um, but now every time I turn in an NFL game, you know, we saw it with the Rams with their college football type of defense, but I mean, so many teams are, are, are getting into these type of looks as well when they're playing too high zone coverage. So I was curious, um, your thoughts on that, why it, it we've gotten to this point where you see it playing out and, and so on and so forth. So to me, my, the simple answer is, and it's not too different. It's not too dissimilar for why you would play them inside. It's, if you have a certain package of coverages that you like to run, it disguises well. So um, if you're a cover three team and you're actually like carrying receivers up the seam, you do want the guy outside leverage because you have a safety in the middle of the field, right? So you can idea, funnel him to, exactly, to your help, right? You also have those underneath droppers that are your inside linebackers who are going to be dropping into like hook to curls um, as your inside help as well, right? So it just makes sense structurally. You want bodies in places where there's not overlap in zones. Um, so for that reason, you know, you would want, if you have your guy outside leverage and cover three, you're probably going to want to run two high coverages that are also going to ask the guy to be outside leverage. Now, there are certain teams who can do a little bit of everything, right? Georgia obviously would do everything with their guys. Alabama would do everything with their guys. Um, Notre Dame with uh, Jeremiah Usu, um, they do everything with him. You know, that was kind of an ability type of thing. They probably won't have another guy like that. But if you have dudes like that, maybe that opens up the playbook for you. But, you know, if you play cover three with your guy outside leverage, you're going to play a certain kind of cover four probably where the guy's outside leverage as well. Um, as far as like how all those pieces fit together and why you want to do it, you mentioned it. You, it helps you kind of cut off the field at a certain point, right? So if the guy who's outside leverage is any good at his job, at least, now you're saying, hey, all of the field space from the nickel to the sideline does not exist to the offense in theory, right? Even, least, even though there's a receiver out there and a cornerback exactly. out there, we're saying 
We're, those are those don't exist. For, yeah, for all intents schools. and purposes, on a whiteboard at least, you're saying that that field space does not matter on a horizontal plane, right? Obviously, if you want to try to take advantage of the defense that way, maybe you throw the one on one fade to the number one receiver, but that's kind of the trade off you're making defensively, right? Is, that's low percentage. I mean, that's relatively exactly, low percentage. Exactly. You're thinking like, hey, you know, most offenses, you know, if they complete three out of 10, they're considering that a decent day. Most of the data would say you probably complete about 35 to 40% of those passes if you're good at it, you know? So as a defense, hey, you shrug your shoulders. We'll probably have as many opportunities to intercept that pass as they have to complete it, right? That's sure. what you're- They're called 50-50 balls for a reason. For a reason, <laughs> right? So, and that that's really kind of what you're thinking, right? We want, from a defense perspective, I was speaking like we because I coach. <laughs> so um, <laughs> from a defensive perspective, I want to try to shrink the field in as many ways as I can. So from a horizontal plane, if I have guys playing outside of slots and tight ends, I am shrinking the field horizontally, right? You're playing a different game now. If you play maybe your old school cover four, where you have your Sam and Will linebacker playing in between the slot receiver in the box and you have your two high safeties up in that way, you're kind of denying the vertical plane, right? So now if you want to attack us, you're going to have to go wide. We're not going to give you anything vertical. So those are the kind of trade-offs from an actual like coverage calls perspective. And we talked about it uh, briefly um, when we were setting up the podcast. So you play cover three and then you have a version of quarter which it, which we call you would call bracket you might be you know if you're gary patterson he has his own version of quarters what he might call he right you know what i mean <laughs> he has his whole you know family of coverages that he runs with that um i live in san diego um rocky long when he was here he's kind of part of not necessarily off the gary patterson tree but his 335 incorporates some of that as well you might see a guy inside leverage on one play and then when they're playing a different kind of quarters he's going to be outside leverage you know playing kind of robber style which is what they call it so it just does it opens up a different it opens up a different chapter in terms of like coverages and possibilities that way and now you're kind of trying to constrict space from and from a horizontal lateral perspective the, like I, I think all that is really interesting because what has sort of been the defining factor about the last 12, 10, 15 years, as far as the spread is concerned, it's this like horizontal 53 and a third, you have to defend every single blade of grass type thing, even more so than the, the four versification of the sport. Um, and so a defense that just denies you horizontal space, like I think conceptually, like that is very interesting. And then I think you combine that with what Seth has, has talked about. I've heard him say this a bunch of times, which is basically NFL teams finally being okay with you running for four yards. Like, yes. you know, that that's supposed to be anathema to everything defensive coaches have ever thought about. And, and yes, I do personally still believe that there is something of a mindset factor to being able to run the ball and stop the run. Um, that, that is, that is hard to quantify if not impossible. Uh, but you know, you, you see defensive coaches making these small minor little tweaks to the structures of their defense that sort of are sort of throwing their hands up and saying, we got to do what we got to do here. Absolutely. Um, actually, so I have one example of this to kind of put a cap on this. Um, 23rd, or I believe it was 2013 or 2014, the year Ole Miss went to the Peach Bowl 
They beat Alabama. And if you go back and watch Alabama played defense in a way where it was like, we just have better dudes. We're going to count on having better dudes. Right. And Ole Miss, you know, that's at the peak of, you know, as you know, one of your guests on the podcast will tell you, you know, that was at the peak of when Ole Miss was old missing. <laughs> <laughs> Ole Miss misspelled yeah. with dollar signs. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's when they had, they had enough talent to be able to punish that. But when you get to the Peach Bowl and you play a defensive coach like Gary Patterson and they get their asses kicked, you can go back and watch all the same plays that work for them all throughout the year. But the way that, you know, and that goes back to the outside leverage nickel and things like that and playing more too high and being able to stop the run out of too high, his defense is designed for that in a very particular way. So all of a sudden, all those bubble screens that were killing teams and being able to run inside zone, you know, with the split action and all that stuff that offenses do now is like a base. TCU was prepared for that in a certain kind of way because of their bucket of coverage calls and structures that they have. So to me, I always kind of go back to that game as a, um, if you're looking for spread defense, that may not be necessarily where it starts, but when you're thinking about how you would stop kind of the typical spread stuff, TCU put on a clinic for that in that peach bowl. Yeah. I think that you talk about the horizontal space, defending horizontal space and it just hit me. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but when you think about the two, I guess two most common coverages or coverage themes that we see now, when we talk about putting your nickel at outside leverage and taking away outside space, but also, and we've talked about this in the podcast, we've explained it, uh, palms coverage where yes, the nickel is inside, but the corner has the ability to shoot down in a cover two slash cover four type of look. And what are we trying to, what, what are the two things that we can eliminate right off the bat is bubble screens. Right. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if you're playing palms, that corner is going to trigger right now when he sees that bubble and he, he, you know, you can get a pick six off of that. We've seen a ton of pick sixes off of that, off of that look. And then, you know, with, with playing outside leverage bracket, stubby stump, whatever um, it's the same thing. Well, if I'm, you can't read an overhang player because he's already outside, you know, exactly. the offenses are trying to read that overhang player and decide whether he's in the box or not. Well, he's, he's outside the box. So you're taking that away from him. You're taking that away, uh, the bubble right away. Obviously they can hit you with slants and then the safety's got to get involved and yada, yada, yada. But I think when you think about these two big uh, coverage concepts, they're, they're both trying to, they both take away, 2000s offense they both take away the offense that you want to run from the year 2000 to you know 2012 or 2013 whatever it is okay we have um by the way while we were talking it looks like the carolina panthers are going to exercise the fifth year option for sam Darnold, which i guess makes sense because he i mean why for you him, can't trade so. for him and not and not keep him on contract right yeah. why pay him more than you would have to um okay so we have Three reader questions. Two of them are from DeBlinky. One of them are from DNA. Uh, from DeBlinky, if College Triple had one and done, uh, which freshman in recent memory would you think could have declared right away? Uh, Derek Stingley. <laughs> that's pretty easy for me. Damn, that's a good question. It is yeah, a good question. That is a good question. Um, I mean, for, for Stingley, you know, if you guys um, – while you guys think about one for Stingley, it was the fact that, you know, LSU was preparing for the Fiesta bowl to play against UCF at the end of the 2018 season. And 
Stingley was already on campus. So it's like December, 2018, I guess already on campus, meaning he was, he should have been in high school. And I remember myself when I was in high school and I could not go onto a, a college football campus and, and basically be the best cornerback on the field. So when I, when I hear that, and then you see what he did 2019, um, his fresh true freshman season, clearly he might not, not even needed to have played college football at all um, to be a player in the NFL. Yeah, that's tough. I'm trying to I, I, mean, I, I almost think to an extent, Jameis Winston. Now it yeah, would have been, that's a good it, one. it would have been his red shirt years or whatever, yeah. but yeah, as far as one and done Jameis Winston, like I will really and truly never forget the first game against Pitt. It was on Labor Day night. It was on a Monday night. And he, I think the ball hit the ground twice. That I game. remember that he game. was absolutely insane that night. Oof. And mean, he was insane the whole season, but he was crazy that night. Okay, I, I don't want to be like a super draftnik right now, but I'm thinking like physically, like I remember the first time I saw Chase Young on the field because yeah. he was next to the Bosa kids. And I remember looking at him and being like, okay, that's going to be the dude. Like yeah. obviously the Bosa guys can play, but this guy's 6'5 and like 240 pounds and he's like 18 years old. You can kind of, you could kind of see like that one was obvious to me. Um, Trevor Lawrence to me was somebody I think who could have been one and done. That's a pretty obvious one as well. That's tough. I wonder what, what on if, my list too. Yes. Thank you for sure. What, what if we take the context of 2020 football, 2021 football, modern football, and we look at Vince young, like if he comes out now, if he's a quarterback now, is he able, I look, I, I don't know if he ever would have figured out the passing game, but you know, you look at him for one season at, at, at Texas, is, is he a guy who could come out and just be a one and done? type of player in, in, I think in, in this football, if you're getting 2005, like 2005 version. Vincent? Yeah. I don't know if there was a freshman to tell you the truth. I, I probably not. Today. He, the year before he was really good because that's the year they went to the Rose bowl. Yeah. Michigan. Yeah. Won that game. Great game. Uh, or what did they, did they beat Michigan? Or they lose Michigan. Yeah, I remember it was a great game. Beat them. Um, but yeah, like I, I, with all like you quarterbacks, I think are the guys that you can do this with in that sort of revisionist way. Mm. Um, Seth, because now, the league is just so much more relatively ready for what they can do and want to do. Um, so like, I definitely see that. Um, I would say that Patrick Peterson might be another one that I might yeah. have gone. Cause I remember him being great from the moment that he stepped on yep. LSU's campus as well. Vince Young had 3000 rushing yards and 6,000 passing yards in his career. <laughs> Video game. That's stupid. You know, I, trust me, you don't have to tell me about Vince Young. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, though? I think one of my favorite plays in college football history is against, I believe, Oklahoma State. And he's like 10 yards down the field and he pumps, he gives a pump fake. And he's like so far past the line of scrimmage. <laughs> and the Oklahoma State DB jumps as high as anyone I've ever seen jump in my life. And Vince Young just scoots by him for like a, 80 yard touchdown or something like that. That for me is one of the best plays I've ever seen in my life. You know, it's funny. You go back. I went back a few years ago and watched the uh, Texas USC game. And like that's, that should be like yearly rewatching if you're into college yes. football, but required viewing. The, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> the offense is so 
primitive from like a zone read quarterback infused offense that it's wild that I'm like, Oh, what if they just read the end on this play? And like, like let, let, let Vince young read the end. But I guess we weren't there yet in terms of uh, college football strategy. I mean, even the Florida run with Tebow, like you go back and look at some of that stuff that was blowing defensive coordinators yeah. minds. All of yeah. those are just all the same quarterback run stuff, just out of like 12 personnel. And it was, was like not, triple, it was like a triple option with like a shovel as right. the third element. It's like, whoa. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah, even the cam yeah. stuff from 2010, like teams don't do that anymore. And that, you know, blew through the SEC. No problem. Yeah, cam, it was like QB power and shit. Right. Like it wasn't <laughs> like single like, wing offense basically. Yeah. All right. Next question uh, from DNA. Uh, who will be the QB this year that skyrockets in value? This is another good question. Um, I'm not going to like the answer to this question because <laughs> I think it is going to be his boy if they are any worth anything. And I do think USC is legitimately going to be better. Um, you know, the recruiting thing was more blippish on the radar a couple of years ago than mm-hmm. I think, you know, my jokes and my memes may, may lead you to believe that I think. Um I think Keaton Slovis with uh, like, if they make a run like a Rose bowl run um, and, and he plays well, I think Keaton Slovis shoots up draft boards. Oof. I mean, look, yeah, go ahead. The guy's not going to be draft eligible, but DJ, you young yeah. it, it's going to be, <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're looking for the next one, just honestly, it's one of those guys where all you have to do is see him on television. You know, you won't even have to see him throw. The guy yep. looks like a Tongan in Cam Newton. Yeah, he's a big fella. <laughs> yeah. He's also, huge, um, I, I think another guy uh, is JT Daniels. I'll say JT now, I know yeah. my guy. Yeah. I know that those wide, like the wide receiver room has been decimated in the oh, last, I think, sucks, two man. weeks. Um, but I, I legitimately still think that they're going to be really good, which may or may not be just a long concern troll for them to lose to Florida again in the cocktail party. <laughs> you be the judge. Um, so a couple guys that I, that I've been watching the quarterbacks cause we're putting together our college football preview magazine. Um, so a couple guys that are a little under the radar, I would say is, uh, Washington's, uh, Dylan Morris had a really interesting season. Uh, he might be draft eligible. A guy who I know is not going to be draft eligible, um, and actually has kind of a quarterback competition, um, budding this year with, uh, transfer Jared Guarantano is Jaden Delora from Wazoo. He is just like the most fun player you'll ever see um, playing college football. And that's, that's what I like about him. Um, but I think the guy is going to be your boy, Emery Jones uh, at Florida. He tell me is, that. he looks like, like we're talking about what 50 throw 25 throws over the past couple of years. But every time he gets on the field, you're like, Oh, Oh, watch the watch, watch the this. Auburn game. His freshman year, he came in. That's the Trascott. game. Trascott like rung up uh, with like a concussion or concussion like stuff for like a couple drives, and Emory came in and like actually piloted the ship a little bit. Like yeah, that offense good, is going to look. That offense is going to look a lot different this year, um, and I'm really <laughs> excited to see it. Uh, I and but. Don't sleep on your boy, Anthony Richardson, who is a backup quarterback who hasn't gotten a lot of burn, but is actually from Gainesville. And as mm. a person who's from Gainesville, I got to put on for my three, five, two <laughs> boys. So watch Ant Richardson. Well, my you sleeper, know, the, that, my last sleeper pick will be Jane right. Daniels at Arizona state. Right. Okay. That's and good. that will be my last sleeper pick. I, I think with Florida, 
that offense is going to look more like a Nick, uh, Nick Mullen, uh, Nick Mullins. Uh, it's going to look more <laughs> like a Dan Mullen offense. Yes. Than you've seen over the past two years with Kyle track, such a different quarterback he's going to get. And Emory is, is, you know what, when I watched the, the all 22 compared to just remembering him, uh, on the broadcast, you know, watching the game on, on Saturday afternoon, he's big, man. He's not, I, for somebody in my head, he was like a small dude, wiry little, little jitterbug type of guy, but no, he's a big dude. Um, can make every single throw, can run, can do all that stuff. Uh, so that I would be really excited if I was a Florida fan, um, uh, with him really. I think oh, another guy I liked Sam Hartman from Wake Forest had a really good season playing in a really tough offense with not great offensive lineup. They had a good receiver there in Surratt, but like, you know, there was not a lot of things helping him and I thought he still had a good year. So that could be a guy who's really interesting. Carson strong air raid in Nevada is interesting too. Um, Brendan Armstrong, have you guys watched Virginia anytime? I recently? have not watched much of okay. Virginia's offense. Here's a guy who made all the right throws, who threw the ball, threw the ball pretty accurately, who has like the, one of the worst throwing motions I've ever seen. And it pains me to watch, but I always appreciate guys who are like that because it takes me, it, 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 it forces me to sit down and be like, because, you know, I'm, I'm a quarterback guy. I've taught techniques so much and like everything has to be perfect. And then you watch this and it's like, oh yeah, whatever. It's all good. Like who cares? Who cares about quarterback? Also, I don't know if, I don't know if this is a skyrocketed value because I think his value is pretty fucking high right now. But after Spencer Rattler wins the Heisman next year, uh, <laughs> the world will know his name. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think uh, uh, right now he's the first pick in the next, in next year's draft. I mean, that's yes. for me, that's, yes. I don't think it's a question right now. Um, okay. Uh, why don't, this is from DeBlinky as well. Uh, why don't college colleges run offenses that may better prepare their players for the NFL on a similar note, besides having just uh, a bajillion four and five star recruits, what is it about Bama's wide receivers that make them look so pro ready? seems like every Bama receiver that comes out is a highly polished route runner. Um, okay. It is not college football's job That's to get players yep. ready for the NFL. That is not college football's job. These coaches got way too much stuff to worry about to keep their own jobs than Absolutely. to get somebody ready to go out, earn them at the NFL level. That's just, that's just not how it works. Um, as far as the Bama wide receiver thing, it's fascinating to me because like when Nick Saban hangs it up, the brilliance in Nick Saban's career beyond the defensive masterminding will be six or seven years ago saying the game is going this way. And I can either try to keep doing what I'm doing and still do it better than everybody else. Or I can flip the whole thing on its head and do that better than everybody else. And that's what he decided to do six or seven years ago when he brought Lane Kiffin in. Um, and, and this is the end result of that. Obviously Julio is incredible, um, but it's not like they were Julio Amari Cooper. Like it's not like they were churning out as many at this rate back sort of in, in the, uh, the, the 1.0 era of Alabama, but Nick decided that he wanted to take the program in a different direction and to be able to take that cruise ship and do that and not miss a beat. And also to do that, like the thing that made him do that was losing a game, one game on a once in a generation football play. Like, 
He lost the kick six, went to the Citrus Bowl, and was like, fuck it, we're changing the whole thing. Yep. And, like, that's all it takes. And so, yeah, Nick Saban deserves a lot of credit, and, and it's why he's the GOAT for that, for me. Yep, so – Nick answered his own question. This is what we want football to be. <laughs> um, I'll attack the second question first. To me, I think that when we talk about like wide receiver development, especially like leaving high school and going to college, so many of these kids are probably leaving high schools that did not have a quarterback that could get them the ball. So it's about just getting a ton of reps. So the Bama guys, at least, if we're going to refer to them specifically, it's because they were all playing since they were true freshmen, like playing legitimate, valuable reps. Um, there was more to it than just being a highly polished route runner. Um, obviously, that is a piece of it. That's a credit to um, that's a credit to their position coach. That's a credit to what they do on offense. But really, being a receiver is more like learning pace learning what windows are open and what are not, you know, how to make plays after you catch the football, you know, when you're not the only guy on the field who can run a four or five or a four or four, right? Like those are things that just happen with repetition. So really to me with Alabama, what I think it is, is that they've done a good job at identifying the kind of athletes that work for the offense. And then they're just playing them early as hell. Cause like a guy like Mechie, you know, I mean, is he going to be a, a mind blowing receiver to me, at least as far as pro prospects, maybe not but he's going to be a very effective college wide receiver, you know, and part of that is because he's been getting reps this entire time. Um, same with like Waddle, you know, Waddle came in as a pure speed guy. And when he left Alabama, this is my opinion. Don't shoot me down for it. He leaves Alabama as the best wide receiver on their roster. Woo! So I agree. Like, I agree. Know, I think like, he's better than Devontae Smith. That, that's where I'm at with it, you know, and that's, that's a development over reps. You know, you come in as just a four, three guy, and then you get reps and learn what it's like to play a receiver against tight coverage against different coverage cells running these different routes, you know? Um, so that's really what it is. And you guys touched on it at first, you know, colleges are not responsible for preparing anybody to run Kyle Shanahan's or Andy Reed's offense. That's not what their jobs are for one. And for two, I think on its face, I disagree with it. I don't think that colleges are doing a poor job of preparing players for the NFL. If you're an NFL caliber player, you look like an NFL caliber player. You can, you can probably count on, you know, one or two hands the amount of times you saw somebody who was bad in college and turned out to be good, and the reason was because of Josh the Allen. offense or the defense that they were in. See, to me, that's more personal development than, than anything that happened at Wyoming. Sure. sure. I, I think where this question would prob probably, I'm not speaking for the blinky, but where it comes from is probably with quarterbacks, especially we heard recently, you know, I think someone was talking about Jared Stidham going from the Baylor offense to the Auburn offense and him, like, you know, not knowing anything at the NFL level and stuff like that. So I do think it prob probably comes from the quarterback stuff. So, uh, and, and the next question about, you know, the receivers. So I might be biased about this, uh, with my regards to my LSU fandom, but I don't know if we're if this is just an Alabama thing where they're developing receivers specifically at a better rate. And I think we're going to start seeing receivers come out of LSU, for example, because they get the same type of receiver, right? But now, like D said, they've opened it up. So Alabama opened it up five, six years ago. LSU opened up two years ago. And now all these receivers are coming out and you're going to get a guy like, you know, Terrence Marshall was the Z who caught, you know, who was like the fourth, you know, most user or fifth most used receiver in the 20, 2019 season. Well, he's just as good as everyone else. 
and you saw it in 2020 when he was the lead dog and and making plays and you're going to I think you're going to see that happen Any, anyone who wants to open it up Georgia wants to open it up those receivers are going to come out and be talented and be the NFL receivers too you know whoever wants to open it up and and go make um and 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 go spread it out a bit I think that's uh that's what we're going to see going forward with whoever, which whatever schools are, are the schools that get all the four and five star receivers. Okay. Yeah. It's like, like Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham were on the same football team. Yeah, they just didn't exactly. do anything. Like they just right. didn't really do anything in that offense. Right. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, all right. We got to get out of here. Um, we've taken too much of everyone's time now. Um, Mr. Johnson, where can the people find you? Uh, the main hub is at RJ Wrights on Twitter. That's where you get all the, uh, the takes, um, everything. Uh, but, uh, my main hub besides that is the podcast split zone duo and our Patreon attached to it, which is patreon.com backslash S Z D. Uh, we go weekly on the, uh, on the free feed and, and there's plenty of fun content coming on the Patreon. We just launched it a week ago to uh, pretty rave reviews. Uh, so we're rolling through that. So those are the, the couple places you can find me for sure. Um, maybe back on the sec network this fall, hopefully, um, and freelancing and all kinds kinds of different places. And then uh, I'll pop up in some, in some fun surprise places every now and then. All right, there you go. That was the uh, PFF cultural podcast with myself, Deontay Lee and Richard Johnson of split zone duo. Uh, you can go and subscribe and become a patron of split zone duo, split zone duo. Like I am. Uh, if you go um, on, uh, on Patreon and, and find split zone duo, you can do it that way. Or you can probably go through, um, Richard Johnson's Twitter or Alex Kirshner's Twitter and find it that way. Thank you for listening. I'll see you guys next week.